Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR with the one and only Jim Ross. Jim, what's going on, man? How are you? I am so good, Conrad. I should be twins, but I'm not. I'm fat enough to be a twin, but I am working on that. Uh, but I am uh, doing good, man. I'm healthy, blessed. And with you today and all the folks out there listening, we appreciate them so much. Our show's killing it better than I ever anticipated. But uh, I like to think it's because we're providing good content and the folks are reacting to it. Tell them their friends about it. And so uh, with all that said, you know, we're, we're kicking ass and I like it. Man, it's been a lot of fun. We had more than 200,000 people check out last week's episode, and we got great feedback from that. We hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we're glad that you're with us today. We're going to be talking about one of the all-time greats in the great American dream, Dusty Rhodes. I guess let's just start at the beginning. When did you first meet Dusty? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I, I met Dusty in April of 1978, uh, and... He was, uh, he was wrestling a cowboy Bill Watts booked him to come in, uh, for the, uh, the big Superdome show and it, the Superdome show did real well, did over 20,000 paid, uh, as a real number. So, uh, even though the athletic commission in Louisiana has been, uh, rumored to be somewhat dubious, shall we say, uh, the number that for tax purposes was accurate. So 20,000 plus a big house in those days, but, uh, Dusty wrestled in the main event. He was, he went on 10th in a 10 match card and he, uh, he, uh, he lost to a uh, Harley race for the NWA title by disqualification. So I met dream going into that and we did, we renewed our relationship. Not a few years later, kind of had, had an interruption there as far as he was in one territory and I was in another. Uh, but I met him again before the Jim Crockett senior tag team tournament down in the Superdome, uh, that was the dusty, basically dusty booked it. And with Watts's uh, assistance, nobody listens to the show. Now go tell cowboy that Jr. said that you were Dusty's assistant, that they were, they're watching Crocker partners, but Jimmy Crocker didn't book the card and bill didn't book the card. They had influence on how they, it's easy how you book a pro wrestling tournament. You book the very last thing you want to see, who do you want to win it? And you book backwards. And uh, create your matchups and this little thing where you can shoot an angle somewhere in a car to take you to another event. There's a science to it. And Dusty understood that very well. So that was the first time, uh, April 1978. Damn, Conrad, it's been a long time ago. It's a long time ago. There's a quote from you uh, in Dusty's book uh, Dusty has a passion for the business and an obsession to be successful. The dream has always treated me respectfully and fairly. And I don't recall ever having a harsh word with him, even though we did not always agree on creative direction. What can you expect? I'm a longhorn or he's a no. longhorn and yeah, I'm yeah. a sooner, uh, yeah. chat me up here. You know, you, you, it's rare in <laughs> wrestling that people don't have, uh, harsh words. Uh, it feels like wrestling sort of breeds paranoia and that leads to guys uh, to use a, the phrase burying one another, maybe not mm -hmm. always to their face, but certainly in a whisper campaign. Why do you think that never happened with you and dusty? Oh, golly. Uh, I think our, uh, relationship went beyond wrestling, uh, by far. And there were periods of time, uh, especially I'd say the last 10 years of his life that wrestling was not the topic we normally discussed. It was football. It was family. It was him going deer hunting. 
It was me uh, making barbecue sauce. It was just stuff like that that we, uh, that we, we, we connected on. Uh, but wrestling is so subjective. You know, one of the worst questions you can ask somebody at Q and A, and speaking of Q and A's, that one in Jacksonville coming up, and also Philadelphia, is that if you ask me what my favorite wrestler is or my favorite match, I will not give you an answer because I don't know. It's like saying who's the best this or the best that. It's a subjective uh, craft, totally, and there's no m- m- uh, judging system, Conrad. So, you know, uh, Dusty and I would, would we did disagree on on, on storylines and angles. Not as much that as, uh, it was that, but not more. So the, the people that were cast in those roles, sometimes he and I would have a different difference of opinion on, on a talent. I don't even remember off the top of my head, but it, cause they weren't that big a deal. I thought this guy would be better at this role than this guy. And sometimes he would consider and, 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 and do it, but more often than not, he's going to ride the horse that he saddled up and, and came into camp with. And, and so as there's my job as his announcer to make that work. And because I did not hold any animosity, go back and listen to my work in that era. I mean, sometimes I was so goddamn over caffeinated. I could have run to LA from Oklahoma almost, but you know what I mean? I I embellish. I'm a wrestling announcer. Of course I embellish. So that was the deal. We just never disagreed to the extent that it got personal. I think that's one thing. Uh, I didn't want his job. He didn't want mine. We enjoyed each other's company. Uh, he, he was a great, a, a fan of nostalgia in everything, baseball, uh, NFL, especially college football and anything involving, uh, the Texas Longhorns. And so we would talk about stuff like that. And we had great conversations. I always thought, you know, if Dusty was still alive today, Conrad, he would be a, he would be great on a podcast like this, telling his stories of his journey. Oh yeah. Cause he, he was amazing, amazing storyteller. I think Dusty Rhodes and Bobby Heenan would probably have, you know, the two best podcasts ever. You know, it's unfortunate that we never had an opportunity to do that. Let's, uh, let's talk about real life for a minute. You said we had more in common than just wrestling. And Dusty has often said that you guys would drink beer together and talk football. Did you ever go to any games with Dusty? Never went to a game with him. I was at games that he was attending, but we never sat together at a game. Uh, he, he went to the, his big game all year was the Oklahoma, Texas game, which he would promptly correct me by saying no sooner. It's the, uh, Texas, Oklahoma game. Right. Okay. So that was his, you know, that's his deal. I got it. So, uh, he went on, he dusty and cowboy bill Watts. a good story here. They went to the OU Texas game. And, uh, uh, of course there's always an old cotton bowl in Dallas. Second Saturday in October, which ties into another story later on. And I don't remember which team lost. I, I want to believe it was Oklahoma got beat by Texas. And so Dusty and Bill were together and Watts got some high dollar seats from OU and all that stuff, 50 yard line, the primo stuff. And they drank beer. They, they landed that morning early and started eating chili dogs. And this is all a part of a big plan. They wanted chili dogs with beans in the chili because Watts and Dusty are without a doubt, maybe Andre, if Andre cowboy and dusty were a six man farting team, they would be undefeated for life. <laughs> so here they are drinking beer in, in DFW, DFW airport early morning. They met there coming in from where they were coming in from. 
they might've been working a town for bill. And, uh, so they get to the state, the game's all the game's at two 30. So they've been drinking a long time. Fast forward to the game's over. OU loses Cowboys pissed off. Of course, the referee screwed them. Everybody anymore. Everybody in our defiant society, if their team doesn't win, it's a, it's a, uh, it's all about the referees. I saw a thing on headline news about these that fight in, I think it was in, I can't remember California, Florida, a little league fight. It wasn't a players fighting it was their parents and they're pissed off at the 13 year old umpire. And I got, I'm thinking, you've got to be shitting me. Are you egomaniacs that insecure in your goddamn life that you got to act like asses in front of your children and the children's mothers? It's just silly. But cowboy was, a, he was a, he was a mad, he was, he was violent that when he got to drinking and provoked. Well, some Texas fan saw dusty. Dusty, of course, had on something orange cap or something. Cowboy had his cowboy hat on. Hello. And, uh, so they hit the cowboy. They, they, they got in his face, did something and bill didn't say one fucking word. He just knocked the guy out. Boom. Right between the eyes. So then an OU fan sees it. He runs over and starts popping off to get the fallen, the fallen longhorn. And then dusty knocks him out. So now they're one upping each other who can do the, who can do the most one punch knockouts on the old cotton bowl during the Texas state fair surrounded by turkey legs and corn dogs and cotton candy. So, uh, it became quite the melee. The cops came obvious. They're all over the place. Anyway, they come, they see it's dusty. They see it's cowboy. They're wrestling fans. They basically encouraged dusty and bill to disappear amongst the crowd. And they did then get arrested. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know how the other guys held up, but it was just knockout after knockout. So if cowboy had knocked out, had not knocked out the longhorn guy, there's no way dusty would have followed suit just for the hell of it, but he did. And they got their first round knockouts and uh, some other guys got roughed up, but uh, that's a, that's a, that's a dusty football story. He loved those longhorns, man. And he, he hated my team. So that was a, that was a cause or pause you'd say for great conversation. And the only thing I regret about all my years with, with dream was I just wish we'd been, we'd been, we'd taken more car trips together because that would have fleshed out more of these stories. Let's, uh, let's talk about when you guys start really working together. I think that probably happens when bill Watts sells the UWF to Jim Crockett in 87. Were you mm-hmm. talking to dusty when that deal is being brokered or are you doing that deal directly with the Crockett's and dusty's not involved? Dusty's not involved in that one. I didn't, uh, it was, it was a spur of the moment idea anyway, you know, I was flying, uh, I was going to fly in Watts's plane, uh, with a pilot, by the way, folks. And to meet to Jimmy and Rob Garner in Atlanta at millionaire, I think out there, one of those private, uh, uh, things. And, um, so before I left the office there in, in Bixby, because our plane was, was, was uh, stored there, his plane was stored there near Bixby. I, uh, I said, Hey, uh, this is an off the wall idea, but Bill Watts was in a gnarly mood and he was burnt out. He was unhappy in life and, you know, he just, he was just, he wasn't, he didn't need to be a people person and do that right in that role. You got to be a people person. Cause you're asking, uh, highly motivated alpha males to work with no contract. So you better be a damn good communicator. You better be a good paymaster and you better be a good listener and bill the listening part and the communicating part was 
somewhat eroding. And of course, the boys are always going to bitch about the payoffs. That's just part of the game. So uh, I said, hey, what would it take to buy this company? Why do you ask? I said, well, I'm going to talk to Crockett. He's wanting to grow. He wants to, he's, he's trying to compete with McMahon, which is a big mistake, by the way. He's trying to compete with McMahon, and uh, he might want to buy the, our assets. We had 121 TV stations. So, uh, and, and we had some good talent. So he told me a number. And, uh, I took it to Crockett at the very end, the same, st- same strategy. We talked about the co co ventures, pooling our resources or TVs, local TVs, promoting big events, major venues, maybe do a few stadium shows, but it worked out so forth and so on. The Superdome was always in the picture because watch could get access to the Superdome and nobody else could in wrestling because he had the only booking license in the state. How that is, that's, and yes, no, it's not, uh, uh, good politics, but it is what it is in Louisiana. It's a different world. So the, I, I met with Jimmy and I, and I pitched the deal and it was not a matter of you know, him and Watts had never got along for whatever reason, but then they became best buddies over the next 72 hours. Cause I said, you know, you talk to Bill, work out the details. He's going to, he's willing to sell. And I said, Jimmy, I'm just going to tell you, we got 121 TV stations. Somebody is going to acquire the assets. He wants out. So, uh, said Jimmy could put two and two together. The somebody was probably Vince. Right. I, we never talked to Vince cause Crockett didn't let us. He, we agree. I agreed on Bill's behalf to keep this deal, uh, in place for, I think maybe two days. Think about a couple of days. Then if you're interested and you want to move forward, even though you want to move forward deliberately, let me know. And we'll, we'll we won't be shopping it anywhere else. So that happened. And, uh, then we bought it out. Or they bought it out rather. And, uh, uh, Dusty, then Dusty and I started working very closely together. So that was, I remember what year that was. Was that 87 or yeah, 87. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so from 87 on, there was really not any long intervals that, that Dusty and Jr. weren't, weren't, uh, joined to the hip to some degree. Uh, but I, I, it was great. You know, I, I enjoyed it. I saw a side of Dusty that. I had seen him bill years ago and you can trace all that back. Dusty's foundation of booking came through Eddie Grail and cowboy. And it was cowboy that, uh, I think turned Eddie or turned, excuse me, Dusty babyface in Florida, uh, I guess the deadly Korean pack song name or somebody like that. And, but they're, they're very influential to Dusty. So I, I, and I met Eddie Graham and I worked for cowboy. I could see all that real clear. So I knew that Dusty and I were going to philosophically have many more agreements than not. Let's talk a little bit about Dusty's reputation as a booker. When you come in, you know, for better or worse, people have been critical of his booking. And I think it goes without saying that, uh, most of the success that the Crockett's enjoyed was due to dusty. But I guess if you're going to give him credit for the pluses, you got to talk about the minuses and some of that sort of comes to a head about a year later when Jim Crockett sells to Ted Turner. So roughly a year after the acquisition goes down, he finds himself, uh, putting up a for sale sign for Turner and dusty would write. My job was not to sit in there with Dave Johnson and tell Jimmy Crockett, you're $5 million in debt. Like anybody in my position, I thought he would let us know if we could afford things or not financially. 
At the very least, he should have told the owner of the company, but Johnson waited one year to tell Jimmy one fucking year. And back then Crockett knew $5 million for a company as big as we were, was a big fucking hole to be in. While he got a hell of a deal from Turner at that time, Jimmy Crockett came to me and said, I want out of Charlotte. I want us to move this. I said, okay, I'll go with you because that's home for me. It was not me who said we needed to move our operations to Dallas. Deep down, I really believed he wanted to get away from the family thing. So he made that decision. Every financial decision that was made, he made. So as far as I'm concerned, the fall of Jim Crockett promotions was partly due to the way Jimmy handled the inner workings of his family business and the way he financially mismanaged the office. We didn't need three secretaries who had been there forever. So he's pretty opinionated and dusty later in life would take it very personal when people would sort of wag their finger and say, oh, you killed Jim Crockett promotions. And he had this type of response, but a lot of people would sort of confuse the two and, and say that they're intertwined. What we would see creatively in front of the camera with a quote unquote dusty finish, or maybe dusty putting himself on top. You hear those criticisms all the time, but behind the scenes, Maybe the best financial decisions weren't being made. You were there for this. What's your take? Uh, I, I agree with Dusty in this respect that uh, Crockett found himself in a hole that he could not dig out of. And uh, the problem was that uh, Dave Johnson, who I only met a few times, the chief bean counter, uh, he kept all that stuff a secret and, and I don't know if he did it to protect his own ass or he felt bad for the Crockett family. I don't know. Whatever his reasons were, they were wrong because you can't, you can't, uh, allow, the, allow this to happen. If you're the, uh, C CFO, you, I mean, you can, you understand le- less, less revenues, you understand that, but the, but, and the creative might not have been what you would do, whatever, whatever. But you got to be open and honest with your boss. That's always a good policy in life. Be open and honest. Yes. And you got to remember what you said last time. You just tell the truth. And so that, that hurt. I think that it's a strange situation. Uh, I thought that Crockett had, under Dusty's guidance, had a, had a really good roster. And then, you know, they had the ability to add some, had some, uh, add some UWF guys which they eventually did, uh, I think begrudgingly. Uh, and I don't understand that it's just, it's like, uh, Dusty, when we'll talk about it soon, but like Dusty going to WWE and becoming, uh, the common man, people know people always want to Vince likes to recreate or create his own, develop his own intellectual property. But, you know, Dusty was a little bit the same way too. He wanted to be in control of, you know, he, he, he needed to be in control of all the creative as his, as a booker and including bringing guys in that uh, they did, if they weren't a big star, like if he brought in Bruce or Brody, let's say hypothetically, he wouldn't change Frank's name. He, he, cause he had a, he had a great name identity. So a lot of those bookers are just that way. Cowboys a little bit that way. So, you know, I, I it wasn't Dusty's fault in that regard. And, and, but the booking, I think more guys should have gotten a chance to run with the ball but he didn't have confidence in them. That's what it was. He didn't, he didn't hate people, but he was very particular, much like Vince is now. You look at McMahon's thing now, and he's 
there's, they got some great, great talents that aren't doing nothing with. Right. And those talents are not doing a hell of a lot themselves to get over because I said here on the show before people made a big deal out of it. Well, JR said, Hey, JR just giving you opinion folks. That's all. I'd like to think it's an educated opinion. That's all I'm doing. Honesty and an educated opinion. But you know, you gotta let the dogs run and you gotta let people fail and uh, you can't wait. It'll work the other way around. So, uh, but Dusty was a little bit like that. Watch is a little bit like that. Those bookers are, are, they know how, how fragile those top spots are and how those top spots that they crumble, you got to start all over. You do, if you don't plan long-term and you do, if you're trying to be one dimensional. So uh, that was kind of Dusty's situation there. A lot of those guys that, and one of the reasons he was on top so much, a, uh, more often than not, he drew money and was a great promo and could talk people in the seats for other matches on the same card. And, uh, you know, he just was, he was a unique talent in that regard. Uh, my only, my only, uh, uh, disagreement might be that newer guys should have been, should have been given the ball, even if it's on a, a small, like a package of plays, a nice hot underneath angle, a nice hot semi main deal. See if it gets over, see if they get over. And if they get over, you can evolve them up the card, but you don't know if they're just in a, if they're just booked with another guy, this doesn't work. Afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Let's talk about the end of of Dusty and, and Jim Crockett. At the end of 88, Dusty's going to do an angle with the Road Warriors and the Road Warriors are now heels and, um, they're going to beat him up and put a spike in his eye, which completely violates the standards and practices for TBS at the time. When it came to graphic violence and foreign objects because of this dusty's fired and it's a pretty memorable angle. I remember when I first got into uh, tape trading in either 96 or 97, everybody was still talking about this from 1988. Um, what do you remember about the incident and more importantly, the fallout from it? Uh, well, whether we agree or not with the standards and practices policy of Turner broadcasting at that time, it doesn't matter because it was a policy. We were made aware of it. They wanted us to, to, uh, refrain from as much, uh, violence that would precipitate blood and they made it very clear. So, uh, but, and dusty, I'm still scratching my head on this one. I don't know why he did it. He knew the consequences. He knew exactly, uh, what they were probably going to do if he violated a direct order from your commanding officer, so to speak. So, uh, I, I just didn't understand it. It was, it was graphic as hell. I mean, it was, you know, scary and you know, the spike in the eye and all the, he bled on national TV, he had bled on national TV before, but the rules had changed. So I never understood that why he did that Conrad. It just, it was a head scratcher. I just figured he was going to, he was going to run a bluff. He's going to see if they could get by with it. 
and they could, you could apologize and tell them you're not going to do it again. And, and then but still benefit off the angle, but, uh, they didn't give him a chance to do that. They, he was gone and, and it was sad around there too. Cause you know, he was dusty was like most wrestlers. Uh, they're not amazing time managers from a businessman perspective. Uh, and Dusty was no different. And, you know, the, the best one I've been around as far as time management is concerned was cowboy. Uh, he's better than Vince as, as time management is concerned and, and booking ahead long-term planning. And, but of course he didn't have to, he didn't answer to a board. He wasn't a publicly traded company. Uh, he didn't have a huge staff. He had a few of us. And so Dusty, I thought, well, Dusty's got a gig someplace. He's got a better deal, but it didn't work out that way. When did you, how did you find out that he was fired? Is it something that happens that day or, you know, does he come into the office on Monday and is given the news or what's the process like for the fallout? As best I recall, uh, he got the news of Jim Hurd. Jim Hurd, I think was the head of honcho at that point in time. The first the first head honcho of WCW when they bought uh, Crockett out cause Hurd was a buddy of Jack Petrick. They both had, you know, were St. Louis guys and TV guys there, local state, local TV. And so they've been buddies for 20 something years before Hurd ever got to Atlanta. That was kind of an inside job. He got his, uh, Petrick got his buddy a job in a story. Was he qualified? No. Uh, was he stuck in his ways and hard headed? Oh, hell yeah. And, uh, you know, so my relationship with her was, was unique to say the least. Uh, and I can explain that later, but nonetheless, uh, uh, I think it was right away. I don't know that Dusty even came to the office. Hmm. I don't, I mean, he may have gotten a call. I, I wish I had the d- d- definitive, but here's the point. The point is as soon as the upper, the higher ups saw it on TV and I'm sure that most of them that did not watch wrestling was showed, showed the uh, clip simply because of the graphic nature of it and it violating the company policy, uh, and to get Dusty in trouble or whomever was responsible. So, you know, you're not going to fire herd who just got there. I don't, I think he's not been there too long. Peter's going to protect him. And I don't know that Herd knew that, that what, what Dusty's going to do either. So Dusty was, if he is his, his deal, he, he had, he fell on his own sword and, and, and hopeful, hoping for the best as I outlined earlier. And, but it didn't happen that way. I'm not sure he even came to the office because, because I remember going to the office and Janie Engel, who was a secretary per, assistant there for WCW forever. What a wonderful lady. She lives down in Texas. That's her only problem. Uh, but she's a wonderful human being. And she was very close to Dusty. And uh, I went in and somebody said, did you hear what? Because it wasn't the internet then. There was people nowadays can't even understand that. But there was no, there was no texting, I don't think, that I would, or uh, at least I didn't text. I don't think I did. There sure as hell wasn't social media like it is now where you can't exhale. JR just exhaled and Norman did, you know, hashtag exhale. Um, so she said, did you hear the news? And I said, usually when somebody in wrestling says, did you hear the news? It ain't good. No, it's about a death. Right. And I know the officers are kind of a, I'm thinking that's what it was, but everybody was very solemn. And I said, what is it? Uh, the dusty got fired this morning. So I, I, I went to his office and as best I recall, 
his office stuff is still there. Right. So I'm, I'm of the belief Conrad, he got a phone call on that thing or it was a very short meeting in and out and they were sending me stuff. Let me so ask you, a, do you think, but uh, you know, is, I think it's fair to say, based on the way you've classified this, this was an act of defiance from dusty, right? Seems like it. So if, if that's the case, do you think Jim heard had already seen other similar things and, and realized, man, this guy just, you know, he didn't want to get with the program. He didn't want to sort of toe the company line. He wants to march to the beat of his own drummer or whatever. If I can't get him in line, I need to get him gone. And he was looking for an opportunity to maybe slide Petrick in. And then dusty gave it to him with this angle on TBS. It could have been, that's a good point. Could have been. Uh, but the, the, the egregious nature of the violation of company policy in such a massive, uh, with such a massive audience, uh, on, you know, on TV and hugely promoted and underscored and embellished so forth and so on. I think that one thing there would have been enough. And if, if heard wasn't totally happy with dusty and I don't think they ever had a great rapport, they didn't jail. They didn't click. I clicked with her a little bit, uh, but I understood I ate a lot of shit too. You learn to eat a lot of shit in this wrestling business from your higher ups. Uh, so I, 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 I don't think Dusty and him heard ever clicked. You know, all they thought heard was just a pizza hut guy, former pizza hut guy, whatever. And there's a lot of truth to that, but they never clicked. They never had a relationship to, to any degree. Uh, and, uh, heard had a way of alienated people. He was gruff and he was, he would change his mind by the time he left your office to his, you know, he's just, it was hard to work for very hard to work for. And the sad part about it and guys are out there listening to this are in sales, uh, or dealing with the, with the public, you know, uh, product knowledge is essential. It's not an option. And in wrestling, well, there's so many nuances and things you definitively don't want to do as a rule. If you don't know those things, uh, you have a way of, uh, unofficially endorsing them. And with that said, you're, you're doing things that are they're just not, don't make any sense. So, uh, her didn't know, know any of those nuances. Herd's wrestling connection was as a lunch partner from time to time with an elderly Sam Muchnick. Sam Muchnick was also in St. Louis. Herd was his buddy. Uh, they did some, you know, Herd's TV station. I think carried, uh, Sam's wrestling. Uh, so they were buddies there, but that was his conduit. And he, he, I remember him telling me a few times, well, I'm going home this weekend. He went home, heard went home every weekend. He had a little apartment there in Atlanta. I never went to his apartment, but I, I know he had an apartment there. And he said, I'm going to talk to Sam this weekend about this matter. I'm thinking, what the fuck? Hey, I ain't nobody got more respect for Sam Mushnick than me, but God dang, at that time he was in his eighties. He's not even watching wrestling. He's not, he don't even know these talents you're talking about. So, uh, cause I asked Sam a couple of questions about that. How do you, how would you handle this? How would you handle that? And his big common answer was in about two sentences. Everything was like six degrees from Luthes. And I love Luthes too, but that's like saying, you know, well, here kid, I want you to watch these tapes of Babe Ruth hit a baseball and do what he does. Well, the fishing's different. The bats are different. The ball's different. Things are different. So I think that's kind of where that came in. No relationship with the herd and. And that's Herd's problem too. You got a highly motivated, uh, s- sensitive, sensitive, Dusty Rhodes. 
You do everything you can to ingratiate yourself to him and establish a positive relationship because as many of Booker's ideas will fail, then they will work. Right. And you gotta, you gotta understand how do you, how do you get them out of the doldrums when they, when they hit a stinker? Let's keep it moving here and talk about what dusty did once he leaves Jim Crockett, he, he goes to Florida where he'd had a lot of his initial success working with the Grams, and he's going to form his own promotion and, uh, he gets Mike Graham involved and he gets Gordon Soley involved, but ultimately it becomes a money loser. And that is identified fairly quickly. And he has an opportunity to go to the WWF. You know, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about dusty sort of starting his own promotion fast forward 30 years and his son is doing the same thing. Did you have any conversations with dusty about starting his own promotion and why he felt like that was the right move rather than just going straight to Vince? Well, yes, it was a alpha male thing again. You know, he's, he's used to being his own boss, uh, and, and calling all the shots. And not having to ask anybody what they thought about this, this angle for the main event or whatever. I think we were seeking that creative freedom and the independence to, uh, sit in that big chair and the way he could do it, facilitate that at that particular time was to create his own playground. And that's what he tried to do back in Florida and recreate history. Let's also talk about, you know, when he gets to work with Vince, a lot of people have a strong opinion about what they did there. Uh, dusty would write, but when Vince had Bruce Pritchard produce a series of mini videos for TV to show me working in different jobs, like a coal miner in Pittsburgh and being the common man, all that kept going through my mind was this is the American dream with a new name. I realized this was all designed to prove to the world that he could take a guy who was the biggest star in the country and just make him into whatever he wanted. And Meltzer would say that the gimmick was to humiliate him. The old dusty roads, even though not looking like a matinee idol, still acted like a ladies man (laughs) and with all of his charm and being a true larger than life superstar, he pulled it off. Rhodes had super appeal to blacks and would talk about getting him some brown sugar. The idea of having sex with a hot young black woman. One would think in the South in the seventies that no white baby face would dare tease the idea of an interracial relationship, let alone a white baby face who almost played black, but Rhodes appeal cut across all racial lines. He was huge with minorities and he talked about his fans being black, white, green, red, and yellow. So McMahon put him in polka dots, had him dancing and put a heavy set 55 year old black woman as opposed to the young hot women. Dusty would talk about as his sidekick. When you first see, when, when do you know what Vince's plans are? Of course, you're still working for Turner. Do you see it on TV when everybody else does, or are you guys in communication? And he says, Jimmy, you ain't going to believe this. No, we, I saw it on television. I don't think he wanted, I brought it up to him and years later, uh, maybe after six or eight beers or after a Texas win at the cotton bowl or something and just to bullshit with him about those polka dots. And, you know, he'd look at you like, all right, I, I know, go ahead, go ahead. So, you know, he, he, he knew what was happening. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a, you got to wonder what the motivation for that was. People said, well, it's Vince. Okay. We got that folks. We got that. Of course it was Vince. You think it was Howard, Howard Finkel. No, Howard didn't have anything to do with it being facetious, but 
But my question, why would Vince want to humiliate Dusty? Or was all about Vince proving that he could change even the biggest of stars into something that was more readily accessible in Vince's imagination. And he could do it with anybody, anytime. Because I wouldn't change. Why would you change 25 years of heavy duty marketing for a name if you're buying a product? And that's what Dusty was a product. He had great name identity as Dusty Rhodes, the American dream. He was everything that you wanted this common man character to be, but this changed the name because you can bad reason, bad logic. So Dusty did not talk about that a lot. Uh, here's the thing, man. People said, well, why did he do it? Let me tell you why he did it. He did it to feed his family, right? He did it to provide his family, a roof, groceries, uh, educations and think, you know, transportation, all that good stuff. What dads do. And he, and like a lot of guys, uh, that are the old territory, uh, born and developed guys. A lot of these cats got paid every night back in the early days, every night in cash. And a lot of them saved nothing. I'm not saying Dusty didn't save a lot of money. I'm not saying that whatsoever. Cause I don't know, but my thoughts are, if I had to bet, he was not unlike any of the other boys in that era that they made, they, 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 uh, spent what they made and sometimes a little bit more. So he simply did that, that gig because it was the best opportunity he had to make, you know, probably North of six figures and take care of his family. Uh, and that, that was the reason it, it was, it was there and he needed the cash to do, to do what dads and husbands do. Dusty would write. So I was there doing these videos, like being a plumber, which in a way was a tribute to my dad and being a meat cutter, which I thought was a cute skit, but the pizza delivery guy was done because Jim heard over at WCW was hired from a pizza company. As I previously explained. So that was a rib on him and up there ribs like that were pretty common. And a lot of them were pointed at me. Ted DiBiase's black chauffeur, Mike Jones, who they call Virgil was meant as a rib, but that backfired because that's how he got over. When did you guys talk about the million dollar man's Ted DiBiase, you know, his, his bodyguard being Mm -hmm. named Virgil. Is that something that, I mean, everybody immediately caught on and, and you guys were having fun with on the other side of the fence, because that character had been around even when dusty was working with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, I, we kid him about it. And I remember one time, uh, Gary Hart goes on TV and he's, 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 ta- he's building a matchup on TBS with somebody it might've been Kabuki or it, it was a, but a heel with dusty and to Gary wanted to be, uh, very realistic, very real life, uh, reality based, uh, matters. And he was great at creating them, by the way. Gary Hart is very underrated, and and because a lot of people don't, now don't even know who the hell he is. Uh, but he's he's worth checking out because Gary Hart is one of the great managers of all time, and he didn't play the role. He was an evil man, and I say that. In a, I love Gary. Hey, I had a lot of fun with him. He taught me a lot. But one time he was doing a promo, and uh, he called Dusty Virgil. He said. Uh, I remember remember like it's yesterday. He said at the end, his closing line was remember we're coming to get you Virgil. So I thought it was a hell of an interview. Right. I didn't, I didn't quite get the Virgil thing. I knew that was Dusty's real name, but I just didn't put it all together immediately. So the next time we do TV, 
he's given uh, uh, some direction to Teddy Long to take to the heels or something. And he t- I remember him saying this again vividly, and tell Gary Hot not to call me Virgil. <laughs> so he 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 got it all. He got all that. He didn't he, he he didn't like being made fun of. Look, let me tell you something. When you get a guy that's uh, uh, didn't have the matinee idle body, that didn't have he's, his face is not going to be on you know America's most beautiful people thing, most sexiest man in America, even though he may have thought he was, he wasn't, and he knew it. He also had a little list, you know, he'd had Bell's palsy, just like me and his bill. That's why his smile is crooked. Look at early day, Dusty Rhodes pictures. And then, and, and then moving on through and when he was in Florida, he got Bell's palsy when he was wrestling for Eddie Graham in Florida and never healed. That's why his little smile is crooked. So, uh, but a lot of us guys, Connor, I'm not speaking for you cause you, you got the confidence of, of a, you know, King. That's why you're the, the grand, you oh know, my gosh, listen, to whatever. You. Pod, pod, you're the uh, grand potentate or what the fuck I called you. Anyhow, uh, I'm going crazy here down the F word. I'm sorry, folks. I'll settle down the, uh, but we're getting self-conscious, especially when you're in the public eye. I can't imagine how many times I've been, it's been leaked back to me from upper management. Well, JR's JR needs to lose weight. He's always going to sound like a hillbilly. Now he can't smile. God damn. What's he on the air for? Oh, I don't know. Maybe a storyteller. Who knows? Dusty was not that way. That's why I think he overcompensated is that sex symbol. He knew he wasn't a sex symbol, but if you tell somebody something on television long enough with enough conviction, they'll believe it. And so I, I think there's a little bit of that in his personality too. Uh, he just didn't have the looks and he's cut his head all scarred up. And, you know, he was a beautiful man because it the inner, the beauty really comes from in, the inside out. But he, he felt self-conscious Conrad about his size, uh, in, in the role. Hey, look, you're out there in a pair of shorts for God's sakes. Right. He didn't wear, he didn't even wear long tights. He didn't wear a top. So he, he was ballsy in that regard, but I can tell you it, he had to have a lot of courage to, to wear regular tights and, and those cowboy style wrestling boots. And that's it. Uh, I, I admire him for that, but it still, I think bothered him. It was always a concern. That's why you hear guys too often go too far down the, 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 uh, rabbit hole on calling him fat and out of shape and all that stuff. That was not a line that, uh, that a heel would use very frequently with dusty. He didn't, he didn't let him. Let's talk about, you know, what he did let happen and that's polka dots. And it's been debated a lot. You know, Bruce Pritchard has denied for a long time that it wasn't a rib that, you know, them putting him in polka dots wasn't a rib and. Uh, you know, people have dug up who were trying to support that, that, Hey, once upon a time, even when dusty or before he was in the WWF, he, he wore polka dots here and there and polka dots were, I guess, sort of in fashion. If you looked at the fashion magazines back in 1989, but dusty always believed it was a rib. I mean, especially when you have the evidence of not only calling Mike Jones, Virgil, but also too, you had the one man gang sort of shuck and jive a little bit for lack of a better word and call himself the African dream, as opposed to dusty's American dream. When even Meltzer was saying that dusty was trying to quote, talk black. Um, obviously those type of things are not the way people speak now, but the idea was dusty was trying to make himself, um, saleable and have some appeal 
to African-American communities with his promos. And if they, mm-hmm. they thought, well, we'll make fun of the way he dances in the ring too, and call him call Akeem, the African dream, both of those very clearly ribs on dusty. What's your take on the polka dots? Was it a rib? You know, McMahon. I think it was. I, I didn't I, I, look. I'm Bruce was there. I wasn't, uh, and I know Bruce loved Dusty as much as I did, and a lot of a lot of the rest of us that, you know, were fans of his work. Quite frankly, just big fans of his work. Uh, but I think uh, I think there's a little evilness, a little mischievous vent on uh, on the on the Dusty characterization. Why? Again, who knows? That's, it was much like, I never wore a cowboy hat, even when I was growing up in Oklahoma, never. My dad wore one every day. I never wore one at all. Cause I didn't want to be like him, like a defiant kid, unfortunately, but I never wore a cowboy hat. And we wore cowboy hats one time. I think it was at San Antonio Royal rumble, Vincent Lawler and myself. And he liked it so much. He said, I'd like you to wear a hat every week. Now the, I didn't like the hat, uh, but you know, uh, they, the, the hat became part of my signature. Now I, I'm, I'm glad we did it. Right. But you know, it, it's just, just Vince having his creative visions and feeling compelled to execute them no matter what, if they bother a town or not. Uh, so that's kind of where that was. I, I think, I think, it'll, it'll, I think it was, a, I think it was a rib. I have a hard time being able to defend that it wasn't. And I think Dusty was a key, he was a key player with the competition and without calling out the competition or like, without doing any billionaire Ted skits, as we saw later on, I think that, uh, it was a subtle way to throw a little shade on, on dusty because he was a top baby face, the top, the booker and uh, the owner's right hand man. Dusty would write about his time in the WWF. I think one of the things that frustrated me the most at the WWF was they had writers trying to put words in my mouth, saying things I would never say. The first time there, Vince had me trying to read off a teleprompter. Here I was one of the greatest interviews in our entire industry. And they were trying to put words in my mouth that I would never say. It took one of their writers nine times trying to write and rewrite what they wanted me to say until Vince finally had them just bullet point what they wanted. So I could say it my way. I'd noticed that when Hogan cut his promos, they gave him bullet points and he would never use a teleprompter to read. So why was there a different standard for dusty roads? You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, scripting and promos these days. Um, and it's sort of a fun exercise to go back and look at given the way wrestling is produced now in the WWE, would some of the talent that got over so big even have an opportunity if they had to sort of fit into that system. Dusty is very clearly saying that wasn't, that would not have worked for him. Bad system. Uh, you gotta, you gotta be smart enough as a businessman to change your system to fit, uh, to fit the talents and their skill sets. If bullet points help, uh, a talent to, to, to do a killer promo that's entertaining, it's informative. It's, it's just something really good that you enjoyed listening and watching, uh, then that's what you should do. You can't have one system that's going to fit everybody's needs because everybody's not the same. And for a long time, accordingly, in, like in WWE, as you brought up, you know, it, that's how it was, except for a few guys. 
And so then you find out if you, you know, if you want the old, the old wrestling thing is a telephone, telegraph, telewrestler. So Dusty knew that Hogan was getting bullet, doing bullet points and that's it. And so that was all he needed. He just, he did it for Hogan, do it for me. Cause quite frankly, and Hogan was not a bad promo guy, but, but he wasn't no Dusty Rhodes. Uh, there were very few can say they were Dusty Rhodes. He was the best, as good a promo guy as I ever fucking heard ever. Uh, unique, great storyteller, had passion, had an interesting look, couldn't take your eyes off the screen. So he had appeal, uh, in another way, but yeah, I, I think that the, the system, the pro wrestling system works best when talented men and women who have charisma and a, and a, and the skill to collect their thoughts into a two or three minute capsule. That's, that's, that's entertaining. That's what makes, that's one of the things that makes the business so good. That's what, one of the things I can't tell you how many fans I've talked to Conrad over my lifetime that said they started watching wrestling when they were young because they love the promos. They love to hear those guys talk and talk trash. And now talking trash is a art form in every pro sport there is. But all that started with wrestling because it, the talking trash was what heels did. So, and, 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 and without every show had to have a great heel. That's why I'm saying we, we, the, the, having a great heel is probably as important as having that one over baby face. If you can have one over baby face, you're lucky. You got to make that happen. No doubt. But boy, if you, if you are not developing heels at the same time and they can't get over, if they're not over, they can't get over working with each other over not over versus not over. Guess is what it's not over. <laughs> well, the, so that, the that was, that's, a, that's how that worked to me. And, I, and dusty was so talented. So that's a fertile imagination. You know, uh, he would have been a great poet. Dusty would have been a great novelist. Uh, he just had that. He had, he could, he could write down his visions and maybe he needed his grammar, uh, corrected from time to time or something like that. Or did he, but he was so good at uh, collecting his thoughts and then giving them to you. The uh, polka dots did in fact get over, uh, and his biggest high, most high profile situation in the company is a feud with the macho King, Randy Savage and sensational Sherry. And that leads to a mixed tag match on WrestleMania six in 1990 in Toronto. It's a pretty big deal to have dusty roads on a WrestleMania. And, um, unfortunately it's not going to make it very much longer. He won't survive to WrestleMania seven Meltzer would write after a year and a half Rhodes was stunned when McMahon fired him a few months after having the debuting undertaker destroy him heads up with no gimmicks at the 1990 survivor series in a way that nobody had seen Rhodes destroyed before in a heads up fair situation. It was one thing for dusty Rhodes to be fired for a beef with management. He'd had those things happen before since he was doing things his way. And if the owner of the company got mad, he was the greatest sports attraction in the world. And there was no shortage of places for him to go. It was quite another to be fired when he was behaving and making the best out of a bad situation. But McMahon was always about youth and looks Rhodes was no. old and really heavy, and there was no more fun and humiliating him. And he'd already had him put people over everywhere, which he knew, but Rhodes didn't was on the way out. Um, when you see the squash happen at survivor series, cause even though you weren't there, I'm sure you guys were watching the competitions pay-per-view. And when you see the undertaker run through him at his debut at survivor series, 90, 
did that catch you off guard? Because that isn't something that we normally saw from Dusty, especially in high profile situations. Well, you look at that in one of two ways. You look at it in the way we're discussing here, where Dusty uh, didn't get hardly anything in the match. It was just basically a, a glorified squash match, as was, as was said. Um, but it's also uh, evidence that McMahon had made a definitive commitment to build the in-ring persona of the undertaker. And so somebody has got to be sacrificed. Uh, and then some people's vision of that is to have a quick squash match. And I don't know that, uh, that's sort of the best way of doing that, but it's a, it's a way, no, no, no doubt there's a way, but with somebody that's superstar status, like dusty, that had been a NWA champion, which didn't do many favors in WWE whatsoever. Uh, he got guzzled and I, I never thought that was the way to, and I can tell you what, I believe you asked Mark Calloway, he'd probably agree with me. They could have had a match to where dust. Here's the thing. If dusty had a, had a, had a flash of brilliance and he had a great, had a comeback. He, he did something where he just wouldn't die. He just kept fighting and fighting and fighting and God almighty, this guy's just got a heart. Well, then when undertaker beats him, it means so much more because you saw brilliance. You saw competitiveness. You saw toughness before the guy goes down for the three count. But if you just go from beat up, beat up, beat up three count, uh, who'd you really help? So basically not, I'm not saying it's about dusty, but in this case, if that happens and you're, uh, you lessen your victory. So I, I think that was another thing that was a little retaliatory. Uh, cause there's a better way of doing it that I think I just explained than just going in and, and walking through somebody. I was a little shocked, quite frankly, but I, I, here's, I came out of this, came out of this deal, man, McMahon loves the undertaker. And I was, I had a, I had a vested interest in that too, because I was one of the guys that encouraged undertaker to leave WCW and go to WWE because uh, Oli wasn't going to use him. One of the things that, um, Dusty wrote in his book about going back to WCW was when I went back to WCW as their booker, which back then it wasn't quite the full blown executive producer role just yet. At first it was really cool, but it wasn't long before the politics of the business started in again. And Bischoff would write about dusty in his book saying dusty followed Ole as booker. And it was a much better situation, but we still couldn't get the right feel to our stories. Dusty could be pretty progressive, but like most other wrestlers, he thought just one or maybe one, one week or maybe one month at a time. Bookers generally weren't used to building story arcs and understanding character development ahead of time. This had become important because we were now shooting 13 weeks of shows at a time. And if you didn't think ahead, you were sunk. So I brought in two Hollywood writers. I met in Disney MGM studios and forced dusty to work with them. I didn't want them to drive the storytelling. I wanted them to take dusty's vision and help formulate a structure or a Bible that would give us a plan to work from dusty would say, okay, this is where these guys are going to end up. And here's the personal issue between them. And the writers would go back and add detail, put in dialogue and create a long-term structure. Dusty is one of the most imaginative creative people I've ever met, but he was used to going from week to week. He had a tremendous understanding of all the little nuances of wrestling storylines. I just couldn't get him to wrap his head around what I really wanted and buy into it. 
do you remember Dusty's return and was it all just high fives and hey, the gang's back together again? And how far, how long does that last before it feels like, ah, oh, shit, the honeymoon's over? No, I thought the honeymoon was over when he got there and not because of him. Uh, the longer uh, this somewhat incestuous group of people all looking to attain power, uh, all buying into the uh, pro wrestler uh, edict of, uh, you know, don't trust Steve Austin's saying, don't trust anybody. Uh, the politics are hideous. And uh, that was one of the things that always appealed to a lot of guys about going to work for Vince. Vince was the boss. You didn't have to worry. You didn't get a different answer from this guy. You didn't get a different answer from Heard or another answer from Mr. Barnett or another answer from the Booker, who that was at that important time. They're just too, it's just so fragmented. So it wasn't, I didn't think it was a great place to work. And I also thought that Heard's idea at the time uh, to have a booking committee was ill-fated and ill-conceived. Ill uh, there were a lot of very, very talented people on the booking committee that left of their own devices could have been great at, uh, booking, uh, writing the booker primarily is writing a TV show. And then after that, after the TV show successful, whatever, then you, you take that content that you created on the television, you take it to the, to the live events, house shows back in the day. So I just thought the booking committee was very, very, uh, uh, restricted for him. It, it wasn't a bad thing to have a booking committee. I, I don't think it was good for Dusty. Because that's, he, he wasn't comfortable and he wasn't in his element, but I also understand that, you know, the collection of talents that are on that booking committee, if we had had more structure, it would all been smarter. We would have had a better line of communication. One of the reasons that guys used to get pissed at me, uh, they'd say they were pissed. They just said to me, they could have, and I just explained to them about my relationship with Jim Hurd. When the booking committee dispersed Conrad for the day or maybe for the week, cause it was hard to get everybody to come in. And, and be on the committee, uh, over one or two days a week, if that, so that the, so my point is they were not in the office much more than they were. So then heard who's trying to learn the business and he's trying to figure this stuff out. He's a he's, he's batching it while he's in Atlanta. His wife's in St. Louis. I wasn't married at the time. I was between gigs as they say. And, uh, so a lot of nights he say, you want, you want to go have a steak on Ted? Well, yeah, I'm going to go home and look what's in the fridge or call, do some or carry out or something. Hell yeah. We'll go to one of those great steakhouses like bones or some of those good ones in Atlanta and Ted bought dinner and the booze. So, and I remember her was a gin guy. He'd say, God damn, it takes a lot of gin to run this engine. <laughs> so I was, so I would try to match him with the crown Royal. Same thing. I told Brett Favre one time in 1992. No matter how hard we try, we're not going to drink all the crown rolling in Atlanta. And we didn't, but that's my old deal with herd. All the guys would leave. And then we'd discuss this or that. And, you know, I tried to defend our position as a booking committee and so forth and so on. But if, if he got with somebody that didn't like something and it put a, and, and put a burr under a saddle, he'd arbitrarily change shit or add stuff. Uh, and then guys would think, well, that JR did that. No, I didn't. They didn't know. So that was, I was just the only member of the committee that stayed there seemingly. And that had the, the time to, to go out and babysit her uh, as, as that kind of how that were, how it worked out. Well, and we, look, we argue like cats and dogs, man. Oh yeah. I've been called an SOB and an MF -er and all this other stuff. I heard mad angry. Cause I didn't agree with his deal. Or, or, or he would say, 
How do you know it won't work? I said, because I've seen it tried before, Jim. It doesn't work. Oh, I got it. But his obsession was to, to follow. He wanted the success of the WWE, WWF at the time, obviously. And so he tried to out Vince Vince. I said, man, you're, you're not even the same zip code. This ain't going to, this never going to work with that theory. Let me tell you what Dusty wrote about Jim Hurd. Hurd, a marketing guy or something like that, who came from Pizza Hut, who was the blooming idiot of corporate America. Now I know I said I wasn't going to bury people who I feel have done me wrong or who I may not like personally, but this guy was never really in the wrestling business, so he is fair game. That said, he was the most untalented motherfucker in the history of the world. Whether you were <laughs> running pizza, whether you were running a road race, or whether you were running to the fucking bathroom. He had the least talent of any human being I had ever been around in my entire life. He had no gamesmanship and no skills at all. As far as employees went. And I say that a lot, but I liked him outside of the business when he wasn't drinking with Jim Ross after each day was over <laughs> where they would have cocktails and Jim was pointing him on the floor because he knew how to play herd like a fiddle. And he would continue. We know Jim's pretty smart. And to this J this day, Jr. is a cool guy. He just wanted my job. And what's wrong with that? He made no bones about it. And I respected him for that. So there's a little bit of a, a shot across the bow from Dusty's book where he believes you wanted his booker position. And that's the reason you were sort of cuddled up with herd. Sure. Your response. Uh, he makes a good point. You know, I was a herd's guy because again, I was the only guy there. He wanted to go out and talk. What'd you guys talk about the meeting? There was such lousy communication coming out of the uh, booking committee because the hodgepodge group of very intelligent guys that all believe they should have Dusty's job, you know, and, and, and they may deny it to this day. Uh, but I doubt it. If you got to be asking for an honest answer, I did not want Dusty's job. I wanted the job. I wanted Hurd's job. That's what I wanted. And uh, I didn't want to be the booker. I didn't want to be a babysitter. I didn't want to be second guess every turn in the road. And that's what bookers get. And anytime you have active, uh, performers on the decision-making uh, group, it inherently is going to lead to some challenges that you have to address because it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Talents don't trust act other talents who have power. Dusty was Dusty's smartest thing. Dusty did there in that, that era somewhere in that neighborhood was to, uh, stop working, stop wrestling. And it, and it got a little better, but he was bored with it. I can tell you that, but no, I didn't, I never wanted Dusty's job, but I can understand why he thought that. And I can understand the misperception uh, of my relationship with herd. I mean, if they had been, uh, look, I, I'm a, I'm native American. I'm a Cherokee Indian, very proud of it. And, but, uh, the one thing about us Cherokees and may go for other, uh, native American tribes, we don't hold our fire water real well. And so I get past the point of no return here and I, I can get uh, rather loud and obnoxious. Uh, and so Heard was same deal. He was loud and obnoxious, but he was the boss. So he didn't like to be challenged. I was I always had this uh, propensity that you want, don't ask me my opinion. If you don't want it, I'm happy to talk about St. Louis Cardinal baseball. I don't give a shit. We're talking about wrestling tonight. You're the one who brought it up. You want my honest opinion? I'm giving it to you. And then he would disagree with my opinion. So I said, I don't have a right to give my opinion. Yes. Ask for my opinion for God damn it. What do you, what do you want? Well, I want some more gin. God damn it. There's a lot of gin to run this engine. It's the same old deal. So there was a misconception there 
Uh, but you know, I, I did not want to be the booker. I wanted to be the man above the booker, uh, and get this shit organized and, and help be a, be his editor. You know, uh, I think he needed, he needed somebody there that he trusted and that could, he could bounce things off of, be a filter, so to speak. But, uh, you know, it just never worked out, but that's the story there. I didn't, I did not want Dusty's job. I, I, Dusty, I saw some great things he did booking wise. He, he has some very, you know, the thing with he and when Magnum TA got Magnum TA was, was probably arguably the hottest baby face in America and maybe only behind Hogan. Right. But in time, because mag was such more, more athletic, had great charisma, amazing look. He would have, he would have, uh, I used to kidding about this and you're going to get over so much here and then you're going to leave and go to take Hogan's spot in WWF. He'd laugh. He, but he liked NWA and he loved dusty. Dusty, dusty got him from uh, cowboy. We brought him out here from Florida, out here in Oklahoma. And you know, he, he became a huge star and we did some great angles with him. You know, that someday we'll talk about the angle where he had to take the 10 lashes from the midnight express and his partner, Mr. Wrestling too, walked out before uh, he could take his lashes. So Magnum had to take them all great angle. He's so great. If you're doing it in every town for about a week, cause your back starts looking like chopped liver, uh, all bad, uh, scarred up and red and bruised. So, uh, but Magnum was when Magnum got hurt and that, that damn car accident, the fact that he made the, uh, superpowers with Nikita Koloff, who was a red hot heel. I mean, red hot, not, not simmering, not he's there. He, he was red hot, uh, make him a baby face, a Russian baby face with a white guy that sounds like Muhammad Ali, which is what he wanted to sound like, uh, was ingenious because it worked, it, it, it worked. So he did some great booking stuff. He did some creating all those major events. He, as good as anybody I've ever seen could create a big event. You know, whether it be Sarcade or Great American Bash or whatever. And those tours he did were printing money for one summer there with Crockett. But they, you know, so it was, a, he was a real, he was a very, a very good booker. But he started depending too much on himself and he didn't have fresh heels to work with. What do, so you, th- say- what do you think of the assessment, though, where he says, you know, he wanted my job, he made no bones about it? I mean, did you guys have a conversation where, you know, when, when does he ever try to confront you and call you out about, look at you over there kissing Jim Hurd's ass. And then you say something like, I'm just making sure my job's safe. You should do the same or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he would rib me about Hurd. Where'd you and Hurd go to eat last night? Right. And you know, I'd, I'd always embellish it. Oh, I had a bigger steak, man. <laughs> Having some crown Royal. Had a great time and her and, and, and Ted picked up the tab, which is, you know, kind of, I'm bullshitting him back. Sure. But he, I, I don't think he ever discussed it with me in a, in a mean spirited way. It was almost like laughing because we knew what we had to deal with there. You know, it's, it's better to, it, it, it's better to be, uh, it's like Vince told uh, Hunter one time trying to hire me back. He said, I'd rather him being, uh, I'd rather JR be, uh, inside the tent, pissing out as outside the tent, pissing in, uh, really, that's a good negotiating leverage. Uh, so I say with tongue in cheek, so no, we never had any words, but you know, I, I don't think he ever quite understood that, you know, heard was not, I knew heard was not going to last forever. 
by art even close to forever. And who's next? So that's kind of where I wanted. But no, we didn't have any arguments about that whatsoever. I never, I never, again, I, I can just be honest with you. I, don't, I never wanted his job. I wanted Hurd's job. And that's what basically uh, motivated me to leave WWE in 93 when, when Eric got hired after going through several other people. So uh, that's kind of where that left, that went. Talk to me a little bit about when he makes the transition, not from you into his job, but him into your job. He all of a sudden becomes a commentator and you guys wound up working some shows together. Whose idea was that? How does it come together? And, and how did you enjoy working with him that way? Well, that was his idea. And I, and I enjoyed it. We always had good chemistry. We always, we had good timing. Uh, we thought so much alike in our basic philosophy of pro wrestling that heels have to be disliked. They can't have too many redeeming social qualities. They have to be, uh, certainly willing to cheat, to win at any time, anything they could, they'll do anything to get an unfair advantage. And then, uh, there, there were rules and I understand it may be ambiguous to say, or, or even ludicrous to say that there are rules in pro wrestling, but there were rules in pro wrestling. And when you were proficient at breaking the rules, because you only had to hide breaking the rules from one person, the referee, you did it where everybody else could see it. What's, what's helped you with your animosity and your heel angst. So now there's very few rules to break. Clint's fish are legal, you know, and that's, that's a decision made by the influence of the talent because some of it's are basically lazy and a lot, a lot of times they're creating something new, but, uh, the dusty was, uh, Dusty and I got along well in that regard. And then he became my uh, color analyst on TBS. We worked several shows together. We worked some pay-per-views together. Um, I remember they made him a big old, uh, I wonder what happened to it to you. They got him a big red, uh, leather jacket. I saw a picture or graphic this week. There'll be a picture of, uh, uh, several pictures of Dusty and I together at different places. And you'll see one in there. He's wearing a red, uh, leather jacket that Turner had made for him. It was a go-to. He wore it all the time. Yeah. And I used to love it because I said, it's so nice that you thought of me having this jacket made to make it the Oklahoma colors, as opposed to the goddamn putrid burnt orange. And you know, that he just hated it. They got nothing to do with Dan Sinneth. It does to me. So, uh, he, he was just a classic guy and we had fun. You know, our, our we never had a production meeting for us. Uh, that lasted 10 minutes, much like Jerry Lawler and I, you know, he found out early on Lawler didn't like to prep. He just, he wanted to go with his instincts, which worked for him brilliantly. And Dusty was large, largely the same way. So, uh, he fed off me and he told me he was going to do that because there was, I've had years of experience. That's what I did. And whether I was good at it or not, I, at least I had more reps at it than Dusty had sitting in that position. So he was a great listener. And I don't, and that's sometimes you hear tell people, young guys asking, what do I got to do to be a good broadcaster? Well, if you're going to work in a two or three man booth, you got to be a great listener. So you can connect all the dots to keep all the dots connected. And he was great at that man. And just look, he, he was booking the shows. He knew where he wanted to go. It's like when I work events, he knew where he wanted to go and it made it easier. So, uh, I, I had fun with him. We had a lot of fun. Of course. And in today's world, we'd be way too fat, way too Southern. Can you imagine we had two guys out there that were one from Texas, one from Oklahoma, you know, nice chubby boys. And uh, we're on national television, which goes to prove that wrestling fans do not watch wrestling. 
to see how pretty the announcers are. I am, and I, and I know it sounds biased coming from me. I get that too. So I apologize for that folks, but quite frankly, you guys don't watch wrestling because you want to see what the announcers are wearing or how pretty they are or whatever. Are you kidding me? Well, nobody, nobody knew that more than dusty He says, I don't think any announcer stands up to him. He used to say Gordon was the best and he was the King, but Jr. is the best man to get. If I was going to get someone to call a world's title match and everybody was equal age wise at the same time, Ross would be given Ross would be my chosen guy to go to war with. So he had a, a ton of respect for you and he had, I guess we should say, a a rather unconventional approach to commentary. Uh, how difficult was that for you to get used to, or do you guys just peas in a pod right away because of your real life relationship? I think we, we had, we had organic and natural timing Conrad because you know, we, we, we had a long standing relationship. I'll tell you a story. Uh, the not long after, uh, Crockett for purchase a UWF of cowboy, we had a, uh, television taping. And I believe the one I'm thinking about was in Muskogee, Oklahoma, believe it or not, Muskogee civic center. I'd refereed a ton of basketball games in that building over the years. So we're back there to do wrestling and we had this tournament. I believe it was a tournament and we had the finals there. And it was, it was, I don't know if it was Bub, I'll get all these guys mixed up on time because it's been so damn long ago. It was either Big Bubba Rogers, uh, AKA, you know, Ray Trader, AKA the big boss man, one man gang, or, or maybe Terry Gordy and maybe Doc. All those guys are involved in the, in the final, final, getting to the, as I remember, getting to the finals. Anyway, whoever was in the finals, you guys, somebody probably knows off the top of their head. But it was an amazing match between super heavyweights. And I had a good night. Uh, and Dusty got the tape back, uh, and he was, he was beside himself. So before he called me, and he called me, and he said, I can't thank you enough what you did. I said, it was a, he said, you put on a goddamn clinic. And I'm going to make David, speaking of David Crockett, David and Tony come into the office and listen to it. This is how you get talent over. This is how you call a big time, big field title match. And I'm thinking, oh, that's really cool. And I thanked him and I'll see you TV, blah, blah, blah. Then I hang up and I'm thinking, well, I think Dusty just inadvertently alienated David and Tony from me. Cause the last thing you're going to want to do is see me and after, after you had to come to the office and listen to that show and that, that, that match in particular, I don't know that it affected Tony that much cause Tony lets pretty much everything roll off his back. That's why he probably lived to be 130. Uh, but David was never overly pleased with me. We've since had, you know, we're fine, but it wasn't a great way to be introduced. I just got on, Hey, I just knew kid on campus. So, uh, but that, that was how dusty believed sports oriented, dramatic, a lot of good drama, be real, be organic, everything you'd want. That's what he wanted. So I was, uh, I was lucky that my, that dusty was, uh, more than willing to, uh, have patience with me and teach me, uh, what he wanted and some other things. Conrad, I would never been on TVS, uh, in the level that I achieved if it hadn't been for Dusty Rhodes because class of champions, number one in short in uh, Greensboro, uh, was Tony Schiavone and me. And Tony was the lead guy on TVS and play by play guy. And I was, uh, I think I was doing UWF at the time and I might've been, I can't remember the times that I was a play by play guy. So we had the same role to the same job. 
And he said, I want you to work with Tony. Can you, can you work with Tony? I said, of course I can. So I shoot the breeze with Tony and Tony's cool. We liked each other. We traveled together some. So I we're getting on there in a, in a role as a color analyst on a live with no net primetime national broadcast was a, was a challenge, but he knew I could do it. And he knew what else he was doing. He was helping me get over with the TVS brass because I was going to play an important role in a show that everybody in the company was going to be watching. So I, I owe him a lot of my television career too, uh, just because he believed in me and I always believed in him. So that was part of our charm of our relationship. But again, like I mentioned earlier, it's not, it was not always about wrestling. It was about a lot of stuff. Of course he talks about in his book, uh, the different management and you know, the different individuals, whether it's Kip Fry or Jack Petrick or whoever. But one of the things he talks about is that when they changed the cornerstone of wrestling on TBS, the six Oh five show, uh, it became WCW Saturday night. So it was uh, more of a talk show format with you interviewing people. And he says that he hated it and you hated it and you guys had to suck it up. And not too long after that, you're out of there. And of course, Dusty's going to be with WCW, uh, for the most part until 2001, there is a break in there somewhere. I know he popped up in ECW and uh, tabernacle taping in Atlanta and started a bit of a feud with the King of old school, Steve Carino. And it's the first time we really saw him, uh, back in the ring, but he did something that a lot of people didn't see coming and he joined the NWO in 1998. So none of this is happening when you're there, but. He's still very much a staple in professional wrestling for either, either WCW or ECW. And after ECW and WCW close, he winds up starting his own promotion for a little bit. Turnbuckle championship wrestling. He also worked with TNA, I think from like 2003 to 2005. And then finally he winds up back with the WWE, I think sometime in 2005. And he would remain there until he passed away. I think his last appearance on WWE programming is March 28th. He's there for the hall of fame doing the little red carpet show. He himself, of course, went in the hall of fame in 2007 and same year I did this. I remember the discussion there was, uh, uh, Vince was talking about that. He and I were talking about it with other guys. I'm sure the order of the order of, a, of, a induction, right? So, uh, I told Vince, I said, well, I don't care when I go on. But you got to close to Dusty because nobody can follow him. And I sure as shit don't want to follow him. And not that I should or even be considered for that role. Dusty should close the show unequivocally. And even though I had Stone Cold Steve Austin induct me and, and we were on first, which also speaks to my theory of that on events like that, you want to get a good start. And the one thing I knew is that Stone Cold would give me a good start because when fans heard that glass break in the that Fox Theater there in Detroit, they came out of their, they came out of their clothes, so to speak. They went nuts. So, uh, and then I had to follow. Then I really did a good job of strategizing, Conrad. Then I only had to follow Stone Cold. <laughs> good luck, anybody following that song, huh? So, uh, Dusty was, and I, 2007. Yeah, that was a special time. I, I can remember uh, seeing Jan smiling, and that's always been a great memory for me. I can see the smile on her face. She was so proud and she knew everybody. She loved Dusty too. Uh, I can't remember. He, I think he called her sugar pie, something like that. Always hugged her. Of course, you know, he was a sex symbol. <laughs> He's going to hug all the women, but he, she loved him. And he just, a, he was such a sweet man in that regard. 
He uh, was a four-time world champion. Of course, one of those wins is as the Midnight Rider uh, in 83 against Ric Flair. And, of course, he had to vacate that when he refused to remove the mask. But he would beat Flair in St. Louis in uh, 86 when Crockett was super hot. But uh, he wound up beating Harley Race for his first and his second title runs uh, in 79 and 81. And when you think about those names, you know, Ric Flair, Harley Race, Dusty Rhodes just classics and they're all legends and and you guys work together on the legends of wrestling series this predates the network you guys had a uh, a format with the wwe for the on-demand service and it was called 24 7 and you guys produced several of these and and it seems like dusty and jim ross were staples on those any fun memories from filming those because i think a lot of fans find them on the network now and, and still love them even though they're gosh more than 10 years old now well, we did a couple of things there. All of us, uh, uh, a lot of the guys on those panels, love to smoke cigars. And the one thing we knew is that if we could convince, uh, Kevin Dunn, the executive producer that we'd like to, we'd like the ability of, to smoke a cigar during the show. There was an old show back in the day where these, I think it was maybe based out of Chicago. There was these sports writers and they sat on this table and and the, the, you can see the smoke in the room. They're smoking their, their stogies and talking sports and a little bar atmosphere. So we, I can tell you this, we had, if you see cups on the table, if you go back and look at that show on the network, they all have booze in them. Everybody on the show was drinking as best I recall. There may have been one or two guys that were teetotalers, but you don't find that too much in wrestling and they're smoking cigars. And the reason we smoked the cigars was we knew that Vince was not going to slip in and stay long. If he smelt cigar smoke, he's out. He can't stand, can't stand it. I said, the only thing else we can do is just all of us start coughing. If we see him, we just all cough his ass out of the room. He'll, he'll leave. But seriously, it was basically the cigars are kind of leave us alone here. And man, we had so much fun. We laugh at each other. We'd tell stories. This guy's story would lead to that guy's story. This guy's story wouldn't jive with this guy's story. Uh, it was a blast, man, because we all were able to produce ourselves to some degree. None of us had a script. Uh, it was, we were never, no cards, no prompters. It was just absolutely great. Uh, and he was as good as anybody telling us damn stories. I mean, he was just, he had great recall and what he didn't recall, he'd make up. It's like, that's why I do commentary with him. He'd say, he, he'd give a word and I said, then I, and we go to commercial break. I said, what the hell did that word mean? I don't know. I just made it up. I told you this one time he said, I've checked my repetenda. So I said, a commercial, Jesse, Jesse, what the fuck is repetenda mean? Sooner you'll understand someday when you have to you know the dream. I said, Dusty, we're at a commercial break. Just me and you now. He said, I don't know what the hell it means. It's a word. <laughs> okay. Repetenda. So you guys want to use repetenda? Maybe that's a t-shirt, Connor. I don't know. What's well, your repetenda? I like it. If you will. Unfortunately, you, uh, you had to write a blog back around, uh, June 11th, 2015. And that's the reason we're covering this. We, we realized last week was we were talking that we had just passed the anniversary of his passing and you wrote a blog about talking to him just a week prior to his passing and. During that conversation, he was trying to convince you that he was just fine, but you contend that you knew something was wrong when you saw him in San Jose at WrestleMania 
because he had had significant weight loss and you sort of compare him to John Wayne. And I know off air, you've told me he was wrestling's John Wayne, at least to you. And he would always insist that he was fine. And he didn't want any empathy or sympathy or anything like that. What do you remember about that bad phone call you had to take when you learned that your friend was no longer with us? Well, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, doing some charity work for, uh, uh, Evelyn charities. And I'm national chairman of a group called headlock on hunger. And, uh, we raise, we, we collect food in that area to feed kids. They find out that in America, that 25% of the kids don't eat regularly if they're not in a, uh, school program. So in other words, if they're in the summertime, no school or there's holidays, no school, a lot of kids do not eat regularly. And it's, it's a abhorrent to think that that's in our country or anybody's country. Uh, nothing else matters when you're hungry as, as the saying goes. So I'm there doing some work and, uh, I noticed that my, uh, phone was just going crazy. I'm, I'm re- doing some, a record, I was recording an interview for a, a WWE DVD cause I was there and they wanted to get it in the can. So I said, well, I'll be here on this date. You can do it there if you want to. So then I finally took a bathroom break and I went in to see my phone and I got messages off the kazoo. So I called the office. What's going on? They said, well, uh, Dusty passed away. And I said, oh, God, I just couldn't believe it. It just, it just, uh, it just humbled me so much. I just felt so distraught and heartbroken to lose a friend like that. And a guy that he had so much, we had so much in common. We weren't pretty guys. We were common. We are common. You know, I used to, I used, I used to, the, one of the nicest things I did for him that I didn't realize I was being that nice when I did it, and some of the fans remember, I used to when I used to talk about and I give a shout out to Dusty's mama down in Austin. She lived in Austin, big wrestling fan. You know, she she liked wrestling when Dusty was a kid. So I'd I'd uh, I'd Dusty's almost out of Dusty's mama today. She's doing good, whatever, and she loved it. And her friends loved it, and boy, Dusty just he said, "Soon I can't I can't thank you enough for shouting out to my mama." So I, I, so I met her. I love the lady. And she looked at him and looked like he, and she looked a lot alike, by the way, fate in the face, uh, young dusty and, and mama, mama Rhodes. So, uh, you know, I, I just didn't, it's one of those situations you find yourself in Conrad, much like when Jan got killed, I didn't know really what to do. I didn't know how to react. There's, there's, you know, you can go to all the Barnes and Noble or Amazon you want. You're not going to find too many books that you can, that can lead you through grieving. And I'm sure there's been a zillion written. I didn't want to read about it. I want, I had to get, let me get through this. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And I had to go back out and be creative and do this video and, you know, try to make a few calls and just get a hold of Michelle and his wife, Michelle. And, uh, you know, this, it just, it shattered me. It just shattered me. I just, and cause I'd been in communication with him and when we went to San Jose, I was sitting behind him at ring at ringside at, uh, on the, the hall of fame. And I noticed he had to go to the bathroom a lot and he's very unstable. So I would always get up when he got up and we'd walk together to the bathroom. Uh, and he kind of leaned on me and you know, I was there. It wasn't real obvious because he didn't want that for God's sakes. But I, uh, I knew something was really wrong. You, you can't lose that much weight. Uh, Conrad dusty wore a seven and a half hat size seven and a half cowboy hat. And I bet you that uh, when he, 
started getting sick and his body was just, uh, was just for, just uh, forsaking him. I bet his hat size dropped, uh, to maybe seven and a quarter. He lost weight everywhere. And he looked, he looked, his eyes got sunk back in his head. You just knew that something wasn't right. And you just, then the other she was going to drop. How long will we have him under the circumstance? But God almighty, I didn't expect a week. You know, hey, look, if I had known that Dusty was in that feeling that bad, if he had just been honest, then he would have, I'd have gone to Florida and hung out with him. Why wouldn't I, you know, I could see sitting down and Hey dream, I know you're feeling good. Let's do a, let's go write a book together. I'll come to Florida, spend a week or something like that. He'd have done it. Let's have some fun with it. Tell stories and laugh, but I didn't have a clue. So it hit me, not totally blindsided me, but it hit me hard enough that I didn't want to continue the day. And, uh, you know, the other thing about Dusty and myself is Dusty's birthday. If I'm not mistaken, is October the 11th. Uh, Jan and I got married on October the 12th and the OU Texas game or in respect to the dream today, the Texas OU game is played on the second Saturday in October, which is around that 10th or 11th, 12th date as a rule. So that time of the year was a big deal for us. His birthday. And I think I wrote it at vlog that, you know, I, the, on that, on his birthday, uh, uh, I would oftentimes get up and go to give him a phone call for Jan got, got out of bed. And wish him happy birthday, shoot the shit, have some fun. And, uh, before I even talk to her about our anniversary. So that whole period of time, every October is a big deal to me. It's a big deal to me that, that when I tell you and I talk about doing some, some tours and doing some things, you know, I, I really want to be back to be where I can watch the OU Texas game. It's a special game for me because of personal issues, not just because of the football rivalry. You know, it's like if you had been to every Auburn, Alabama, every iron bowl for the last 30 years, you'd probably want to continue going to the iron bowl. What's your deal? You, uh, you teased us last week with a story about playing horse at Jim Crockett juniors house, like, (laughs) uh, for money with dusty. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, he beat my ass, uh, pretty convincingly cost me a hundred bucks. Uh, we were going to dinner. Crockett was uh, Crockett was putting his crew together after the buyout. And he saw that I could help him in more areas than just as a broadcaster even though I was perfectly content to, to do only that one role. Uh, so we're at a nice restaurant in Charlotte. Uh, and, uh, I'm, what the hell we had some kind of, I, I don't, I want to believe that it was a French restaurant. Why? I don't know, but I know there was a lot of escargot being consumed and, and booze, lots of it. So. Uh, we're taking, I'm staying at Jimmy's house as I recall. And, uh, he stayed, I stayed there with his wife at the time and his, his daughters and, uh, that's so he, he has a big bag, he had a basketball goal there. So all night we've been back and forth. And so you Texas rivalry and he was talking about, you know, I don't know how we got on the subject of this, but we got a subject of, uh, well, I could beat your ass shoot a basketball, Dusty. God almighty. You think I can't play basketball? Well, he said, well, you don't think I can play basketball, do you? I said, I don't know if you, I don't, I wouldn't say you'd probably be a great basketball player, fat bastard. 
I'm a fat bastard. We're not either one going to be basketball. We're white and slow and fat. How can we be great basketball players? He said, well, I'm just a good shooter. One thing led to another. Then the, 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 uh, the challenge went down to play a game of horse. The, the game of horse started at 2 a.m. And we were both drunk at Hooter Brown. Uh, or some parts of the country, Cooter Brown. Yeah, it's Cooter Brown down here in Alabama. All right, there you go. I'll go Cooter with you. All right, so we, we uh, decided to play a game of horse for $100. And uh, it was it was a, a runaway. He, he, I got pasted. I might have got a, he might have had a H, but he beat my ass like a government mule without a doubt. And of course I never, I never heard the last of that, that, that story uh, with he and I lasted for, for ever. So it's that point forward. Uh, uh, so that was a, such a fun night cause here's the thing, man, the, the, the shit we were talking, the trash talking between shots was was absolutely hilarious in today's world. That would have been a great, uh, uh, piece of video, but there's no, there's no record of it. Other than all the event that he, he beat me like a dog, the open Virgil government mule and give me a restaurant quality ass whipping. And I paid him a hundred dollars on the spot and did leave me a lot in my wallet. I can tell you that on that night, but nonetheless, uh, he beat me fair and square. And by the way, Dusty was a very good shooter of basketball. You know, he really was, but the thing a lot of folks don't know you, Dusty played a semi-pro football. Dusty told me, he said, I go to college at a school long enough to, to me, it was the, the, the fall semester or the winters or the spring semester. And I would go to where I could be eligible for that semester and play ball on that team that played. In other words, he might go to one school and play, uh, in the spring and play baseball. And he was a really good baseball player, really good baseball player. And then he would not go to class. Of course, it'd be, then he'd be ineligible for that baseball team. So he transferred to another school. Uh, and back in the day, those old Texas junior colleges or some of those small colleges, you know, all you had to do is have a pulse and you're going to be eligible at least one semester. And so, uh, that was his, his MO, uh, in, but he was one of those West Texas guys. And, you know, the funks had such an impressive, the funks had such an influence on, on, uh, on dream, uh, especially, uh, uh, Dory senior, uh, and of course, Dory junior and his, his good buddy, Terry Funk, those two son bitches make great music together. They were awesome. Uh, some of that footage from Florida when Dusty was a baby face and Terry was a heel was uh, absolutely classic. And Conrad, as you astutely mentioned earlier, if folks go back and listen to those promos and they're available on YouTube and so forth, uh, probably WWE.com uh, uh, or yeah, WWE network, rather I'm saying, sorry. Uh, remember they weren't scripted. They weren't written by a writer. Uh, they were, they were created in the minds of the talent that was delivering those lines. So the talents cast themselves in the role of the speaker. They were their own story writer their own copywriter. It was a thing of beauty because it was real. It was natural. It was organic and fans, even though they knew quote unquote, it was still showbiz. They get lost in the, in the presentation. And I find myself these days not getting lost in the presentation very much. The interview that, uh, Cody made after beating his brother at double or nothing was as close to this amazing magic that I heard in, in years and years. And under the stone coast, he interviewed, uh, Tony Khan for his show 
his podcast. And he said, he said the same thing, essentially that he can't remember when he was so emotionally invested. And that means probably whether he had admitted or not, he had some tears in his eyes. I did. I cried at the announcement position during that promo. Does that make me an old fool? I guess it could, if that's your perspective, but it makes me a fan that loved what he heard and it meant something to him. And that was the whole deal about Dusty's promos. He had a way of making those promos relatable and to mean something to the individual hearing them. And that is a lost art. You know, the most famous of which, uh, you know, when you talk about Dusty Rhodes promos, everybody goes back to hard times. Let's take that one off the table. What's your favorite Dusty Rhodes promo? If you had, uh, sort of recommend everybody go back and watch this one promo, what would it be? Uh, the promos leading into the Charlotte, uh, great American bash, uh, were all those bash promos that one summer, there was a summer, uh, of, uh, big outdoor shows, big shows that, uh, Dusty, uh, booked and the promos for those towns. If you can find them, if you do look, you're smart, you guys are smarter than me on the it stuff, but go back and look at those promos because, and if you can find them when they played Philly, for example, or they played uh, Baltimore, find the find the promos he did for those towns that the nation would not have heard, but the local market did. And you're going to find some of the most amazing content you've ever heard. That summer was, was loaded with great promos, uh, from the dream because he was involved in personal issues against villains that had steam that were over and you were paying money to see dusty whip the heels ass. And I wonder if that happens that often in today's world, the, uh, promos that he would have been doing in 1987 on the way to Charlotte for the great American bash would be with, uh, with his feud with Tully Blanchard and a lights out barbed wire ladder match for a hundred grand and in 85, he would have also been feuding with Tully Blanchard, but for the television title, I'm going to assume you're referencing either 85 or 87 because in 86, uh, he was a part of, uh, in Charlotte anyway, a part of a, a tag match. It was dusty Magnum and baby doll taking on the midnight express and Jim Cornette. So probably 85 or 87. Yeah. And he made great promos. You're probably right. He made great promos too. Uh, double edged sword here. He made great promos when, uh, promoting a match involving, uh, Cornette's midnight express. And what made him so effective was the fact that he was usually, uh, responding to a Cornette interview about the same match. And between the two of them, you just got the feeling that you're seeing there's something special coming that I need to be a part of somehow I'm a wrestling fan and things like this may not be replicated anytime soon again. So that whole, that whole era right there was uh, really good. Uh, I can tell you, get Crockett getting, uh, Cornette, uh, or having Cornette there. And then from us and the UWF thing, uh, they, they fumbled on Dr. Death, but they, the guy that they had their eye on the dusty had his eye on particularly was the sting. Cause he saw that sting could be, you know, a next big thing, baby face. And, uh, so that was, that was, uh, those, he, he had, he had, he had emotional investment things. He always made sure the villains had some, some juice 
not steroids or blood, but, you know, had some, some steam and, uh, he was just, he was an artist, man. And I love this deal. I've been in those interview days. He would sit and listen to the other promos because that was his job. If somebody missed, said something, bad date, bad opponent, whatever, or a line that was not going to get through like Cornette saying, she's got the nicest teeth I ever come across. <laughs> My God. Yeah, well, it obviously a double entendre, but, uh, that didn't make air, but, but here it became a very competitive environment. There were a lot of guys there. This guy named Rick Flair is a pretty good promo guy. I heard, uh, facetiously said, but by the time Dusty did his promos, he was in a competitive environment and he was fucking ready to show these guys that the bull, of the woods on the mic is still dusty Rhodes, the American dream. I love his, uh, his, his feud with Rick. They were doing, they were talking about the Omni and Rick comes out and says, uh, I don't do no jobs in front of 70,000 people just right on TBS. And so like a half hour later, it's dusty's turn. And he sort of says something like, well, I ain't putting my shoulders on the mat. So what do we have? And it was just something they're going back and forth was fine. And I liked the old one when he said, uh, so I think he's talking to Kabuki, like, uh, are you an Aaron, are you an assassin or an Aaron boy? There's so many of those famous yeah. little. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, they just remember a great story. We're in Raleigh at the Dorton arena and the Dorton arena was uh, not air conditioned. And it was the big arena at that time in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, of course, uh, which is just up the road from, uh, Mayberry. I'm kidding. Uh, but anyway, Raleigh was the site. And it was a summertime event. We're doing TV. It's hotter than eight acres, eight acres of hell in that building. And the, one of the dressing rooms, which just happened to be the one that dream used because he had his monitors in there and he could watch the shows and it was air conditioned. It was frigid, frigid air. It was really cool. So, uh, Bar Mr. Barnett was, uh, there and he was miserable because it's so hot, uncomfortable. I said, well, let me take you to Dusty's place and you can, you can hang out there. It's, it's air conditioned. So we walk in, I remember walking down these little stairs into the, this, this uh, very uh, basic uh, locker room, cool as hell, but so nice. And there he was dusty. He's laying on the floor, the, the concrete floor, which is cool, pretty cool. Uh, and he had nothing on, but his Austin hall cowboy boots. That's the dressing boots. Maybe by a company called Austin Hall, somewhere in Texas, I believe. And he's sitting there naked. So uh, the dream and the, and the and the little dream are all in full display. No shirt, no wristbands, no nothing, nada. And he's down there, and he's he's doing his Marlon Brando. Are you an assassin or an errand boy? I said, are you an assassin or an errand boy? Barnett has got caught up and he just now saw the, the whole display. And, uh, he says, he says he had to get out of there. I said, I, I can't be here. And I said, Mr. Barnett, what's wrong? He said, if I saw much more of that, I might change teams. <laughs> so that was the, the dream. And, but that was him. He, he was uninhibited, you know, even though you knew he had his, uh, you know, his insecurities as a, a lot of us overweight guys do and the Bell's palsy thing and the Southern accents and all that shit to be a performer on television 
you know, it's not mass appeal or you're told it's not mass appeal. Uh, and I have never believed that, but nonetheless, uh, we, we, he and I both battle for our spots against some odds of typical television programming and casting. So, uh, he was funny, Barnett, he had to get out of there. He could, so well, I don't, I, I, did you know he was going to be done? Did, is this a rib? No, I didn't have any idea. We didn't set this up, Mr. Barnett. I didn't know what, you never know what dream's going to do. I know I've known him for years. And speaking of that, have you ever watched any tape of him and Murdoch as the Texas outlaws? Oh, great stuff. Are they amazing or what, man? One of the more underrated tag teams. It's a shame. Nobody talks about dusty Rhodes or Pat Patterson as a member of a tag team because they were both badass tag teams. As good as there was as good as there were whatsoever. Another one you can add in that tag team picture is uh, Nick Bockwinkle. He was also amazing, but Patterson and Ray Stevens were as good a tag team as there ever was invented, quite frankly. And then uh, Dusty and Murdoch in those late sixties, when they were both young and full of piss and vinegar and beer, uh, they were amazing. And I'll get, I'll tell you sometimes Vern Gagne is not given the credit for creating the stars that he did and having an eye for talent and, and booking people. Uh, in, a, in ways that they could draw money and get over, uh, because he, he paid all the bills. He was, he was a cowboy of his, his era, his, his territory. So everything was depending on him. They say, why well, I, I asked cowboy one time, why do you build everything around yourself? Cause I can depend on me. I can't depend on anybody else. Let's and does he kind of, does he kind of felt that too? I think to a certain degree. No, I have no doubt. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's out there that when everybody was leaving Vern in the AWA, he, uh, he made Larry Zabisco the champion because he knew, Hey, my family's not going to leave. So right. I can count on him right. to be here. So I don't think that's that unusual, but, uh, let's do some rapid fire questions for dusty. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Uh, hoop wants to know a lot of people cite dusty as a big influence in their career. Who were some of dusty's biggest influences? Oh man. Uh, man, whoever was on TV in Houston. On Paul Bosch's television in Houston in the, uh, uh, fifties and sixties. So that would, you know, there's a, the, the whole plethora of talents there. I know that, uh, he always thought Fritz was a hell of a heel and to get over as a heel. When you, people know you're Jack Eckerson and played football at TCU and you're, you're pur- pur- purporting to be a Nazi or German sympathizer or whatever. Uh, but I, I think all any, any of that guys in that era, uh, he, he liked a lot. And he uh, aspired to be, he was an individual. I think, but I do think that the funks being from West Texas and the Texas natives and being rednecks and cow, you know, cowboys and fitting that, uh, stereotypical Texas image, uh, were very, very influential to dusty. Uh, cause he always talked finally about, uh, Dory senior and, yeah. and all, and the boys. So I'd say the funks are probably as big as anybody. Clayton Fitch wants to know of Dusty's many roles in ring talent, commentator, booker, trainer, coach. What was the best role for him? If you had to pick just one, uh, baby face, a wrestler, uh, cause he can get over with working with anybody. Uh, secondly, probably, uh, his booking. So, but his, as a talent when he's younger and healthy and, and, uh, all that good stuff that we always talk about, uh, he was hard. He sold tickets and he, he, as we said earlier, he was one of the first guys that was just as a, as a, as a Caucasian 
he was just as popular with the uh, African-American audience and the Hispanic audience as he was with uh, uh, the Caucasian fans. So I, I think Dusty has a baby face. You know, Cowboy used it very uh, timely. The Superdome shows. I remember one time he has Bill has some red hot heels and he put Andre and Dusty together. And everybody in the world knew that they weren't going to win the titles because they're not in the territory. And of course, Cowboys swerved them and the, they won the titles. And uh, But it was a big surprise. So Dusty made every card better. He became a great attraction. And, that, that, and you can thank TBS for a lot of that. Let's talk a little bit about um, the, the common phrases that he used. Paul Rogers wants to know, what was your favorite Dusty call? Something like funky like a monkey, the hit maker, the record breaker, if you will. Is there a favorite Dustyism that you have? That's like saying, what's your favorite Beatles song? Right. It's, good. it's a damn many of them that are good and they're memorable. But uh, I, if, uh, what I've just heard there, probably he loved funky like a monkey. He loved talking, uh, as if he were an African-American or he thought an African-American would sound like, because he was so influenced by Muhammad Ali. And, uh, as a lot of guys were in that generation, talking trash, saying what's on your mind, being brazen. And he was very brazen as a, you know, baby faces don't normally brag on themselves. Dusty broke that mold. He bragged on himself all the time. He was pretty. He was tough. He's a champion, all that good stuff. So he was, he broke a lot of molds in that regard on how a baby face positioned himself, not the humble, soft-spoken, you know, demure baby face. Well, I'm just really glad to be, really glad to be here. Excited to be in Oklahoma city on Friday. And then he was, he was, he was belting it out, man. He was up. The, the volume was up, but I think, uh, you know, he was just, he was amazing in that deal. I don't know. I don't know if there's, I don't know if I ever heard anybody could do promos for a specific match or a town to make it personal make you remember where he's going to be and who's going to be with and when then dusty, uh, Charlie wants to know, and he has a great, uh, great question. Cause we get this all the time on Bruce's show. Bruce tells a story about dusty being quote, the second most recognizable athlete, second only to Muhammad Ali. Do you have any, any similar stories or experiences with dusty? Is that something he said to you a lot? Oh, of course he, he was very, uh, self-promotional minded. Because again, if you go on television and you tell somebody something you want them to recall or to, to remember, if you say it enough and you say it with conviction and you're not saying something that's so outlandishly unbelievable that it can't be believed, they normally will believe you. And Dusty was on there and he, he was, he would pat himself on the back and because it was, it was him. And you think back to look at some of those old tapes of Muhammad Ali. He did that. That was his whole, that was his whole shtick. So it was, it worked. It worked in a global way, uh, way and it worked in sports. It worked in entertainment. And so Dusty just parlayed that and took it to another level and it worked out swimmingly. Dan Kasman wants to know, uh, what is the one quote from Dusty you'll carry with you for life? Not something necessarily said on the microphone, but is there a Dustyism that you sort of still use in your everyday life. Yeah. If you, uh, if you turn your Jersey in, you can't be on the team. And I actually think that could, I think that could be contributed to Michelle, uh, Dusty's wife. God bless her. You know, she's a spitfire. I love her. She's a Cuban. Hey, he talk about being married to a Cuban when he go to Florida. You don't think it didn't work. <laughs> they, hey, he's one of us. 
he don't look like us, but he married one of us. So he's one of us. Uh, but I think what it meant was anytime you quit something, uh, don't be disappointed that, that, uh, or be surprised that you failed. You can't quit on projects that you, that mean things to you. You shouldn't quit on anything that you start. You should finish what you start. But basically, it's all summed up in a nutshell. Sooner, if you turn in your jersey, you can't be on my team. So that's, it made sense. In his own way, it made a lot of sense. I use that today. I tell I see young talents at seminars and meet and greets and things like that, Conrad. What have I got? I said, you, you, you can't quit. You're not going to make any money. You're not going to get rich. You're not you know, right now. But you can't quit. If you quit, you know what the the, the end result's gonna be. Not where you wanna be. So he was that was a big thing to me, and I, I believe that to this day. If you're committed uh, to something, just stay with it. Don't quit. Because the quitter, quitting thing just don't work for anybody. Well, and we hope that you guys don't quit listening to Grill and JR. We're looking forward to next week. We've got the whole schedule of shows coming your way. In the meantime, he is Jim Ross. I'm Conrad Thompson, and we'll see you next week right here on Grill and JR, only on Westwood One. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.